want to welcome you all uh, with us this morning. I want to actually start today's service off in a word of prayer um, for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the nation of Afghanistan. I'm sure many of you are aware of the recent events and unfolding there. And so we have people, a part of our faith, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are united by the work of Jesus who who if they have not already, uh, they are facing legitimate persecution, that their lives uh, are at stake because of their belief in Jesus. So they don't have the freedoms and liberties that we have to be able to gather openly and publicly um, like we do. And so i love to spend a quick word in prayer on that. But as we get started there, I also want to say a quick thank you. I know there are some of you who are part of our church who at one point or another uh, spent some time in Afghanistan uh, in support as part of our U.S. military providing some safety and comfort for those people. And so just know that I have been praying for you in particular, if you, your spouse, a family member who had participated in that, I can only imagine the kind of hardship you might be facing of, you know, everything we just did, was it even worth it? Um, And so I just want to say thank you for your service for us and that as well too. Um, But let's go ahead and take a quick moment of prayer. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, over in that nation. Heavenly Father, we come before you, hopefully, Humble, gracious, come before you with a sense of awe and reverence. Lord, we don't even really know what it's like to be persecuted. We certainly don't know what it's like to have our lives legitimately threatened because of our faith in you. God, I pray for great boldness and courage for the men and women, the families, the children who who confess your gospel, who confess that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. Give them a supernatural peace, a supernatural power. History shows us, God, that sometimes the strongest moments in the life of the church is when persecution arises. Give them a special indwelling of your spirit, the same spirit that lives in us, through the repentance of our sin, through the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, provide for them the provisions that they need, the care for one another. We pray that your evil, or that the evil there is pushed back, but ultimately we know that many of them will be seeing you face to face shortly. We thank you for their courage. We thank you for their boldness. May we learn from them. May we pray for them. May we do whatever we can to care for them. Lord, we offer this all to you. Amen. I once heard a story about a man who uh, had a life-threatening accident. And uh, it was kind of like one of those things in the movies that you see, right? He's being pushed through the hospital on the gurney and all of the ceiling tiles and the lights going overhead and, and there's kind of some nurses or EMTs around him and then he crosses that thick red line and pushed into the uh, emergency room. And the story continues that after this man was released, probably within maybe moments, inches of his life, he meets up with his pastor. And his pastor sits down with him and saying, hey man, I'm just so glad you're here. What did you learn? How are you doing? And kind of just this pastoral moment to which the man replies to the pastor. He said, you know what? If this has taught me anything, it's to live life with no regrets. And the pastor goes, oh, well, that's great. That's a great news. And the man stops the pastor short. He says, no, 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 not in the way that you think, though. He said, as I saw my life literally flashing before my eyes, I've decided that I'm no longer going to live a life of regret. That anything my heart desires, I'm going to chase after it. 
that the wedding ring I wear is just going to be a symbolic gesture and I'll take it off at any moment. That anything that, 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 that sensually or pleasure or anything that I can possibly think of that that looks fun or I might enjoy doing that, I'm going to live a life of no regrets. To which the pastor responded to him, well, just know I am always here for you whenever you need. Now, I think it's no surprise a story like this. We like to think that, that when life gets hard or difficult or uncertain, we retreat to God. But the truth of the matter is, don't a lot of us maybe cognitively live that way? If not, we have verbally said that ourselves. Now, you and I might not go around saying that's how I live or how I operate, but how many of us, if we were genuinely honest, might have a little bit of that running in our life as well, too? To which my response to that story is, what if a life of no regrets ends up being the greatest regret that a human being could ever have? As we continue in our, in our teaching series through the book of Hebrews, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to set it up for us. But it's kind of been building to this point in which the author of Hebrews has been addressing these Christians who in some way or another have been living a life of no regret. They've chased after their heart's greatest desires. They've gone the ways of culture and society, sprinkling a little bit of Jesus juice on top, hoping everything is going to work out. And it gets to this point, after the first 12 chapters describing what we did in the past, those rituals, those traditions, everything that God has been faithful towards has been to set us up to find true meaning in this life. In some way or another, we could say that the book of Hebrews is trying to answer this one simple question. How do we know if we are following Jesus well? That anyone who claims to be a Christian, a disciple, or perhaps you're someone who's wrestling with God in the first place, like, like that might be your question, right? Like not just how do I know I'm in, how do I know I'm, I'm part of the club, but how do I know I'm following Jesus correctly and appropriately? I've been there before, and perhaps you have been there too. And what the author of Hebrews is going to show us this morning, it's going to start off in chapter 13, the first couple handfuls of verses. There's going to be some do's and some do nots, and then it's kind of this example or this, this idea of finding fullness in life. And the second half of our passage is going to be like those who are called to exemplify that fullness. How do we know if you and I, how do we know as Christians, a first Christian church, if we are actually following Jesus well. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse one, follow along with me. You can download the app, take notes. Here's what it says. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing, some, by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. This is talking about prison for the form of persecution. Not a wrongdoing, not a guilt of the law, but rather for their faith. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said... Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? 
Here we begin to have this passage. Isn't it interesting? In the first 12 chapters of Hebrews, it's kind of like this. Here's how you find freedom and victory apart from religious and ritual things. And then the author of Hebrews says, okay, let's tie it up. Let's put a bow on it all. And just boom, here's a list of rules. (laughs) Here's some do's. Here's some don'ts. And isn't that where some of us begin to push back Christianity? We say, well, I like the whole idea about grace, I like the whole idea that I don't earn my way, but then what are you trying to do sneaking some of these rules in, right? It's like when you try to get a kid to eat their vegetables and you kind of like mix it in to to the the mac and cheese. What's this green stuff? Oh, it's just Skittles and really they're peas. I don't know, something like that. Not that I've ever done such a thing. Don't you feel like sometimes that happens in our faith? We get sold this bill of goods that it doesn't uh, kind of depend on you, but then once you're in, it's like, oh yeah, did you read the fine print? Did you, get that, did you get the memo on the way in? There's some stuff, some way we ought to live. And we know that our good works do not somehow garner our way to heaven, but there is a dichotomy in which if we do, truly and genuinely love and follow Jesus, that our life will look different. And the author of Hebrews kind of unpacks it with some pretty common things here. He talks about sex, money, power. He talks a little bit about suffering. And what he's beginning to do is beginning to make this correlation of where are you finding fullness of life? What are you seeking that is trying to offer you a fullness of life? So he's trying to say, have have a proper view of these big things that you and I alike struggle with, things that are bombarding our mind and our heart and our culture give you this illustration. He uses these things, sex, money, power, suffering. Even suffering to a certain degree can become a badge of honor that until you have gone through what I have gone through, until you have had the pain that I have experienced, you haven't really lived a life, right? And he's making this this idea, right? Sorry. Try that again. So if this balloon is like your life, something has to fill it. If this balloon is like your life, I can guarantee you are trying to fill this to its maximum capacity. And this is where this dichotomy of these rules in Christianity comes into play. Well, what is truly filling your life? Well, we run to sex because we believe it's going to give us relationship. We run to money, hoping it will bring us happiness. We jive for power, hoping that some way that authority over others gives us meaning. We bring out our suffering and we hold on to it and we don't move on or heal from it because we think it's our source of identity. And the truth of the matter is, is that sex isn't a bad thing. Money isn't a bad thing. Suffering happens. Power isn't a negative thing. However, they have all been created to be given to us in a way that God has ordained. And so the question isn't, will you ever deal with the love of money? The question isn't, will you ever have the temptation to have a sexual relationship outside of the confines of marriage? And on and on and on down the list. The question is, is how do you view those things? Is your sole purpose to hopefully that those things will begin to fill your life? 
Now, ironically, the Christian conundrum is that sometimes over the past, I don't know, a few decades or so, Christians have done this romanticizing as a pendulum swing. Well, the culture has just gone south in their view of sex, and that's why all these problems and the kids are just all hoodlums running through the street. And so then we create this purity culture where we almost, in some way, we idolize and romanticize Christian marriage. And so that what's filling your life is not maybe rampant sexuality. What's filling your life is the idea of Christian marriage. You go the exact opposite. Well, we know that money corrupts. We don't want to be a lover of money. And so I'm going to take a vow of poverty. And so then that vow of poverty in some ways becomes the thing that fills our life. But no matter your issue, no matter your vice, perhaps even no matter your virtue, if that is what you are seeking to fill, then you have missed the point. Can we all be honest? Doesn't that stuff just slowly leak out? Just over time, little by little, it doesn't offer us what was promised. That the relationships that we thought sex would provide all of a sudden begins to go south and sex can no longer be this medicinal ointment over the issues. That the power we thought we were striving towards, the hard work, and someone gets promoted over us, then it's kind of like, well, what was all that for? That the money we have acquired and striven after, that joy that we once had in our things, in our houses, in our toys, in our boats, aren't bad enough themselves, but then all of a sudden, what happens when those medical bills come? What happens when that emergency is there and you're left with this? So the author of Hebrews is trying to get us at. The goal is to not, not have. The goal is to embrace a life filled with Jesus Christ so that when those things come, you do not look at a life like this. You still have a fullness because no one can take away Jesus Christ from you. The one thing that cannot be grasped out of your hands no matter how hard they try is your faith in Jesus. That no matter how hard you cling to certain things of this life, there's always the threat that it's going to be stripped away from you. Because here's the truth, is that at some point, sex will break up with you. Money will rob you. Power, it'll corrupt you. And suffering will try to trap you. So Christian or not, the true test isn't do you have those things. The true test is how much are you letting those things fill your life? Is sex a plaything, or is it a rich bond under the confines of marriage that God has, has delivered? Is power, is it about authority to feel strong, or is it an opportunity to humbly serve those under your care? Is money about this selfish gain, or do you view it as a resource or a thing to give away for the pursuit of the kingdom of God? It's not bad to make a good living. It's not bad to own a house, go on vacations, have a boat. But if we're not careful, doesn't our life feel like it's dependent on those? Doesn't the fullness of what we're after all of a sudden get a little confusing? One of our values here as a church is life-giving generosity. We talk about that by giving of our time, talents, and treasures. 
And one of the ways that I just love this church, I love you guys as our congregation, is you exemplify that in so many ways. So much so, this is a picture of Jackie Holt, our kid's pastor, and then this lady, her name is Stephanie Barron. She's a tender and volunteer at our Urbana campus. She recently built some micro-pantries for the low-income places. And because that we are a church that values life-giving generosity, she had this food drive to kind of fill these pantries, and she ended up coming short. And so she called me. She said, Eric, is there anything that church can do? And I said, absolutely. Because of your life-giving generosity, because some of you have not felt the need to fill your life with the pursuit of money, rather obedience to God in that time, we were able to say, absolutely. What do you need? She's just, I need a trunk full of groceries to go finish these pantries. And that's what we did. When we can view life in the fullness of Christ, and not the fullness of sex, money, power, suffering, work, family, relationship, whatever it is, then we can have a different, long-lasting perspective on all things. But if Jesus does not fill your life, something else is going to offer to do that, right? Look what Jesus says in, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to still kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and what? Have it to the partial? Have it to the percentage? No, no, no. Have it to the full. Jesus is talking about biblical contentment here. And sometimes we think of biblical contentment as this idea, well, I just got to suck it up. I got to make sure that I just put on this happy face, that I need to find a place that I enjoy to work at, or whatever it is. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no matter what you seek to fill your life with, if it's not me, you will never be biblically content. You will never be Jesus-centered. You see, the idea of being a biblically content person is not to just say, well, I like where I work. I like what Jesus has given to me in this life. I'm good. The point of biblical contentment is that I find more joy and fulfillment in who I walk this life with. I find more contentment that Jesus is my Lord. I find more contentment that his Holy Spirit lives in me than what I have or don't have. Contentment is that I choose to have more meaning and fullness in Jesus and Jesus alone and nothing else. Because the thing is, is you decide, I decide how much I will let Jesus fill my life. You and I both, we decide how much we will let Jesus fill our life. But what you need to know is that we serve a jealous God, a God who created us, who, who, who has given us new life, who wants nothing more than every single aspect of our life. That we have this Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The life, death, resurrection, anyone who believes in Jesus not only gets eternal life, but is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And don't we sometimes quench it because we're unsure? I don't know. Well, what Jesus is kind of saying is, is that you get to dictate and decide how much I will fill your life. So don't be surprised if your life is filled with anything other than me, that it might start to leak out a little by little. Let's be honest, though, right? Can we just be honest for a second? Money solves some problems, doesn't it? 
It's okay to say yes. We know it does. Sexual relationships meet a need for a season, don't they? Power and authority sometimes bring some privileges. But if it's those things, they will slowly leak over time. And what Jesus is offering, he's saying, don't settle for the temporary when I have given you the eternal. Don't be so filled with everything else that you've left very little room for me in your life. Maybe that's it. As I've reflected on my own life, perhaps the seasons and the times and moments, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe the reason that we haven't been filled with Jesus is not out of a desire. Maybe it's not out of like, well, you just gotta want Jesus more. Perhaps the reason sometimes we miss the opportunity to be filled with Jesus is because we haven't let out the other things that we've already let in. Like, perhaps you don't need just more love for Jesus. Perhaps you don't need more passion or desire for Jesus. Maybe what you need is just to let out the bondage of money. Maybe you just need to let go of the idea that sex is this other thing with Jesus that will fill my life. That perhaps it's not necessarily a greater knowledge of Christ, rather in obedience to say, Jesus, empty me with everything so that you may fill me up that we are filled with Christ only when we are filled with Christ. I know that sounds a little simplistic. I know that's just one of those, I get it. But isn't that true? If there's something else filling your life, there's something else taking up space, taking up room, your heart, your mind, your direction, your path, your guidance, how you make decisions, If you're not completely filled with Christ, you're not going to be completely filled with Christ. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it to you in abundance. Sex, money, the power, the suffering, all of those things the world is going to throw at you at some point or another will leak out and you're left wondering, wait, what happened? But I, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews continues in verse 7 Uh, this this last half of of Hebrews chapter 13, and it's a directive to the spiritual leaders. It's a directive to pastors and elders. Look at what it says. It says this, in exemplifying fullness. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Skip with me to verse 15. It continues. It says, so through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share good with others. For with such sacrifice, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their way of authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Verse 18 is my favorite part. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. 
Hebrews kind of begins by addressing everyone, saying if you claim to be in the family of God, you claim to be a Christian, do this. And then it kind of becomes like this, this dual thing. And those of you who are not maybe considered spiritual leaders, well, here's, here's kind of what we are calling and expect of those who carry that title. But you notice there's a directive of both word and deed. It's not just set an example in the way you live, and it's not just teach good things, it's do both. Protect your people from heresy. Show them how to live this life. Like imagine for a moment you decided to go take a trip to, I don't know, like Wyoming, Colorado, Mount Everest, whatever it is, and you're going on a hiking trip. And you get a trail guide. And what is that trail guide supposed to do for you? Well, he's supposed to do two things. Number one, he's supposed to kind of give you directives. Here's how you pack your backpack. We're going to be gone for a couple days. Kind of say, if you see a bear, do this. If you see a snake, go, ah, run away. You know, all those things. They're supposed to give you some directive and word. But then that trail guide goes with you, right? That as you get to those certain parts of the, of the cavern that are a little tight, or you get to that one spot and say, hey, hey, it's been raining, and I've been here, and I've done this trip so many times that when it rains, I know that that part gets slippery, so watch out. Their goal is not just to say, here's where you go, here's what you do, but it's to lead and model that for you, both in words and also to protect you, to guide you, to make you aware of the dangers and the pitfalls. Essentially, they say, follow my lead. And that is the calling for myself, our pastors, and our elders here at First Christian Church. There's a revivalist by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. He put it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, a river cannot rise above its source. That if our desire is to see the spiritual well-being of this church continue to rise and mature, then it starts with us. Because the truth is that spiritual leaders lead in both word and deed. That we are not called to just lead in the preaching of the word, but also in the exemplatory actions of that. Spiritual leaders lead both in word and deed. Now, I need you to know we are not perfect. Some of you who know me are like, yeah, I'm very aware. But hopefully in our imperfections, what we exemplify is humility. That hopefully in those moments or those seasons, God forbidding, they're extremely minimal, but when there are mistakes, we are the first to exemplify repentance, forgiveness, that we do not shy away from apologies and seeking forgiveness and restitution. What also means for you guys as our church is that submission to authority is not necessarily blind followership. It's not. There are spiritual leaders who have abused people. There are pastors who manipulate church members or their staff. There are definitely guys and women out there who preach heresy. There are spiritual leaders who do not exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you may be aware there's a recent podcast that's kind of uh, on the top of the charts called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it talks about this, this exact idea that one man created a culture of abuse and hardship because of his poor spiritual leadership. I'm reminded of what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, in which he says, don't do it for dis, uh, dishonest gain or for lording over, rather set the example. Paul tells Timothy, and I'm kind of speaking to myself, but I want you guys to get maybe a little insight to this, that Paul tells Timothy that becoming a pastor, becoming an elder is a hard task, but it is a noble one, but is also one that must be stewarded well, that word and deed matters big time. 
If there was a verse um, in all of scripture that if I could just like cross it out and just completely get rid of it, ignore it, it'd be James chapter three, verse one, where it says, not many should presume to be teachers because you will be judged more strictly. Translation, that when I stand before God in all eternity someday, he will judge me more strictly because I have taken on the role of pastor and preacher of God's word because our pastors and our elders have taken on that responsibility. At one point, we will be judged more strictly as spiritual leaders than those who did not. Therefore, our words and our deed matter, and they matter a lot. That as a spiritual leader, you don't get to do this, well, do what I say, not as I do. You don't get the cop out of, well, he had good intentions, and we kind of hoped for the best. Dare I say it this way? Is that the life of the spiritual leader matters Monday through Saturday than it does on Sunday morning. Because a lot of people can get up on a stage and stand behind a pulpit. They can get in front of a classroom and, and teach students or kids, put on a smiley face, make you feel good, and go home and treat people like trash. They can manipulate people. They can misuse their power or authority for their own gain. That who spiritual leaders are Monday through Saturday, I would argue and say that is of vital more importance than who we are on Sunday morning. And hopefully that that week to week instills a confidence of how we are pursuing Jesus, a love for his word and commitment to prayer. I want to pause here and just say this, is that we here at this church, you guys have an amazing staff and amazing elders, myself not included. No, I'm just kidding. We have an incredible staff team who love Jesus Christ. You have some of the most God-honoring, God-fearing men of God as elders that I have ever come across. That in the past month alone, I have seen more heartfelt, knees-bowed forms of prayer than anything else. But I also want to remind you of what the recommendation to you all. Encourage us. Pray for us. Let us know how and what Jesus is doing in your life. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 4. He says, devote yourselves to prayer and being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I think it was last, uh, two weeks ago, we got a call in the morning, it was a Thursday, and we got a call from Jimmy John's across the street, and they said, hey, just so you know, there's an anonymous person uh, has set up like a catering to bring Jimmy John's for your staff. And I said, who is it? And they wouldn't tell me. Now, little did this person know that this Thursday we had four staff members out and two were on the other side of town. And so three cartons of like 15 Jimmy John sandwiches shows up and there's three of us. So just let me say, I felt really appreciated that day. And here's what I say to that. I say, we, we welcome that. We would cover your prayers more. But you know what we want more than the, that was a good sermon Thanks for doing that. You know what we would covet more than anything else? Is notes and words and messages of here's how Jesus has changed my life because of what you guys have done for me. Like, like if you have a, a kid or a student 
who you've just seen them grow in their love and their passion for the Bible or Jesus Christ. You know what would mean more to the Holtz than just, hey, here's some Chick-fil-A, and they really like Chick-fil-A? Is a note that says, here's what I've noticed in my kids by the way you've led this ministry. Pray for us that we may lead you well, both in word and deed. One of the things I've been telling our staff recently is that we have in some ways missed our calling for a season. We spend a lot of time trying to do church and get church and do church things and whatnot, and we've missed the calling. Not always, not forever, but definitely seasons in which we have forgotten that our role is to help you love Jesus and Jesus alone. Our role is not to help you love this church. Our love is, or I mean, we hope you love this church, but ultimately, to help you love Jesus, to follow him, helping each other follow Jesus. That in some ways, we have taken this call to leave behind the 99 to pursue the one, and inadvertently, in the pursuit of the one, we have neglected our 99. If you're here and, and you've just felt like disconnected, that the emphasis has been more about who's not in this room than who is, I need to apologize. Our heart is for this church to be so contagious, our worship to be so powerful, our love for Jesus and one another, that as our people go out into the world and the one is out there, that people, yo, there's something different about you. There's something different about that place. That we can't leave behind our church body to pursue the one if we have not led our church body to pursue the one. You get what I'm saying here? And so if you have felt like, man, I tried to get connected, I tried to get plugged in, and it's just been, you know, kind of scattered all over the place, I am genuinely sorry for that. Our commitment for the next season is to help each and every one of us come to know Jesus even greater than before. And that if we have wronged you, if we have stepped on your toes outside of the gospel being preached because the gospel is offensive, if we have given you any indication that we don't want you here or whatever it is, then I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that we continue to move forward with one another that we become not 99 sheep, but 99 shepherds who know how to chase after the one in our life. So how do we know if we are following Jesus well? It means that we've made him the well of our life. If you're ever faced in a moment in a season in which you're, how do I know if I'm following Jesus well? Have you made Jesus the well of your life? not the Sunday morning service, not a particular person. Have you made Jesus the well of your life? Dare I say, what is filling your life on a day-to-day -day basis? In John chapter four, Jesus meets this woman at the well. It's high noon. And this woman represents kind of being full, trying to be full with two things. And number one, she's had five husbands. She's been divorced five times shacking up with another, a sixth. And Jesus looks to her, don't you want to be full? 
At the same time, Jesus is meeting her at high noon, meaning that there is shame and suffering in her poor choices, which has now become a part of her identity. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, do you want to never thirst again? And she responds, well, of course I do. Mainly because I don't have to depend on a man for my well-being, nor do I have to be put in public shame. And Jesus says, come to me. I am the living water and you will never thirst again. Translation, if I fill your life, you will never search to be full again. I want to read verses uh, 8 and 9 again of chapter 13. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all strange uh, kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is no benefit to those who do so. Jesus wants to go after what is going after you. Jesus wants to come after that sex, that money, that power, that suffering that's trying to fill your life and say, if you let it out, If you let it out and you let me fill your life, guess what? You will always be full and never have to question. That Jesus wants to change you than he more so than he wants to change the culture around you. Sometimes we say, well, we need to change culture if it wasn't for them. And Jesus said, no, 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 you just come to me. Let me fill you up and you don't have to worry about what the culture says. You don't have to worry about their definitions. of You don't have to worry about the, the, the directions that they're trying to lead you. If I fill you up, you will never question again whether this life is worth it or not. One simple question. Well, how do I know if that's me? Is your life, your life plan, your direction, your guidance... Is the trajectory of your life more for the next 40 or 400 years? If you were to say the plans you are making, the way that you view sex, money, power, houses, relationships, people, jobs, is it for the next 40 or 400 years? Because only one of those offers an eternity with Jesus Christ. I invite you to partake uh, with me in communion this morning as we move to our time of response. It's our chance to remember and to reflect on how and why this comes to us. That Jesus on the last night with his disciples, getting ready to set the path, yesterday, today, and forever, That the gospel of Jesus isn't just for your yesterday. It isn't just for your sin. That the gospel of Jesus isn't just for now, today, your present circumstances. But it's also for your tomorrow, your forever, your future. And Jesus says, it is the same. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That in those moments in which you believe you have been filled with something of the world, if you let it out and you come to me, With repentance, I will give you grace. That if you make room for me to continue to fill your life, I will be there. That if the fullness of me is found anywhere else, I will promise you it leaks. But Jesus says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is the God we love. That is the God we serve. And that is the God we worship. And last night with his disciples, Jesus held up the bread. 
He broke it. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup, the wine. This is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite you all to stand with me this morning and then we're going to go ahead and close out the book of Hebrews by reading two of the last verses together. The words will be on the screen and I invite you to read these along with me out loud. It says this. It says, Now may the God of peace through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen